Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. What is the place of humans in history, and how can we play a role in deciding our fate? In the following talk by Fight Back editor Joel Berkman, he provides a Marxist critique of The Dawn of Everything by David Wengro and David Graeber. You can read his article on the topic in the In Defense of Marxism magazine and listen to further discussion on the International Marxist Radio podcast. Links in description. In the autumn of 2021, there was a book that was published called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Now, this book was written by uh, anarchist anthropologist David Graeber and an archaeologist known as David Wengro. Now, coming from Graeber, if you don't know who David Graeber is, he got quite popular. He's quite popular in left academia, and he got quite popular because he's known for coining the phrase, we are the 99%. He was one of the main people uh, involved in Occupy, one of the main academic left figures. Now, this book has been welcomed by many on the left. You may have heard of it. You may have seen people talk about it. Um, unsurprisingly, in my opinion, this is mostly brought up to argue against Marxist arguments. <laughs> uh, I have seen this many, many times myself. Maybe you have too. And I would actually argue that that's the main function of this book. Uh, there's many interesting things in it, uh, but stripped down to its basic fundamentals, what it represents is a giant attack on historical materialism. And I would argue any scientific study of history. Um, so therefore, it is important for us to uh, fight back against this sort of thing. So what does this book promise? Now, it promises a new, not, not only uh, a new history of humanity, but a new science of history. I think they're using that word quite liberally. <laughs> they claim to have appended the conventional narrative, and they say, quote, we will not only be presenting a new history of humanity, but inviting the reader into a new science of history, one that restores our ancestors to their full humanity. So basically, the central thesis, more or less, stripped away of all things that are not essential, is that the, the main driving force of historical development is human agency, is free will, is that the ideas are the determining factor in the development of history. So this basically means, they generally argue throughout the book, that human beings can change, we can change our social structure regardless of material conditions. More or less, that's the main takeaway here. Uh, they therefore claim that the only laws that govern historical development are those that, quote, we make up ourselves. Flowing from this, uh, any scientific method looking for determining factors um, uh, of social development beyond the human mind, the authors claim, deny our ancestors their agency and therefore our humanity. And then they go on to, throughout the book, which is over 600 pages, they attack various materialist explanations for phenomenon such as kingship, class exploitation, the oppression of women. They call, these, they call 
any description of origins of these phenomena, they say that's myths, basically. Tall order. We're presented with the tall order. I'm sure you're all waiting to hear how they justify these arguments. <laughs> so you can see it's a big attack on historical materialism. Um, so instead of asking what the origin of these things are, the authors claim that we should instead be asking how we got stuck in the belief that we cannot organize society any differently. So, and this is the turning point in the dawn of everything. That's, that's why it's called the dawn of everything. It's that they say at one point we could believe that we could create a different world, and now we're stuck and we can't, we, we, we're stuck and we don't have ideas to change the world anymore. Um, so this is the moment then in which our ideas became stuck. Not the material reality, ideas, you see? It's very idealist. Um, so I argue this is a huge attack on any scientific study of history. And in, while in a more disguised form, because they don't do it as openly in the book, it's, a, it's an attack on Marxism. I think that that was the main enemy that they were trying to attack, but they can't do it directly, so they do it kind of in a more sneaky manner. Um, but due to the idealist method that the authors adopt, they actually are unable to answer the basic questions that they pose. I would be curious to know how we got stuck. You won't find the answer in this book. Um, so, method. So this, this presentation is, is about free will and determinism. That's what we're, we titled it. Because there's lots of things in this book. There's tons of things. I use hundreds of examples. I could go through those for hours. I don't think that's the point, though. The main point, and the main thing that we should take away from it, is the method. So, Graeber and Wengrow, they counterpose what they call freedom to what they call determinism. But really, this is just an old uh, philosophical debate about the relationship between free will and or freedom and necessity, actually. Uh, and this is basically this concept, uh, freedom and necessity, applied to human history. And the question is more or less, are the events and institutions in society shaped by the free choice of individuals who make up the society, or are they determined by objective laws beyond our knowledge and control? And for thousands of years, I think philosophers and historians have grappled with this, grappled with an apparent contradiction. On the one hand, historical events are made up by the actions of individuals who are conscious human beings, right? and they're motivated by their will. But on the other hand, the development of humanity, if you look at it over long periods of time, shows a remarkable degree of uniformity, and there are clearly trends. So that would seem to support the idea that the development of humanity is driven by objective laws which are independent of any human will, right? Now Marx, I believe, famously resolved this contradiction by stating, Famously, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. But I don't believe that entirely solved the problem, because you can always ask, you know, so our ideas are shaped by our environments, including the social conditions into which we are born. But where do these conditions come from? Uh, for example, who created the institutions such as the state and private property? 
and the relations of production. Um, many in history have sought refuge in human nature or in God to explain something like this as the final cause of all history. Now, what I think Marx added onto this was Marx responded to this conundrum by explaining that ultimately at the root of this is the development the development of society is first and foremost dependent on the development of the productive forces. The development of the way in which humans interact with our surroundings to produce the material necessities of life. And this is what forms the bedrock of what human society is built on. Um, and on top of that, you have the social structure, the ideology, etc. built on top of that. And this is the playing field in which human agency is uh, conditioned and exercised. Uh, so yes, the way in which humans produce their sustenance, the necessities of life, Marx called the mode of production. And like I said, upon this, society, culture, politics, and ideology arise. And this is why we see quite a lot of uniformity throughout human history. Different modes of production tend to produce similar social structures. Hunter-gatherers tend to be egalitarian. Uh, ancient slave societies tend to produce a certain form of uh, rule of the slave owners. Uh, feudalism tends to produce a certain social structure uh, and uh, were ruled by landlords and kings. Last but not least, the capitalist mode of production produces a political superstructure in which we are nominally free, but only to choose our type of exploitation. Um, so the mode of production of all these societies tends to uh, lead to an ideological superstructure uh, that reflects the relations of production of the society. This is why, for example, even though separated by thousands and thousands, even over 10,000 years, when Europeans reached Central America, Mesoamerica, a society like the Aztec was quite similar in its social structure to, ancient, to societies that have existed in the old world, which is not surprising. Uh, they had a similar mode of production, um, even though they were separated by thousands of kilometers and thousands of years. So, um, yes, Marx explained, the mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. Um, I'm sure David Graeber would completely disagree with this quote, as you can tell. Um, he doesn't say that, though. Uh, Marx explained that the relations of production, he also explained that the relations of production are not fixed for all time. Um, they change along with the development of production itself. So therefore, the emergence of new ideas are not beamed into our heads, the heads of great men by a god or something, um, but the, 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 the great the, the ideas and the great revolutions and the big overturns and changes of previous ways of life are not arbitrary events. Uh, or the product of a single genius or a god. Um, they, re they reflect deep changes in the material foundations of society. For example, the great bourgeois revolutions were not simply the product of great thinkers, although we do know those great thinkers. Um, the revolution was a product of these new productive forces rebelling against the old relations of production 
on the outmoded political superstructure that was defending it. And this was the, this reflected itself ideologically in the Renaissance, uh, like these great thinkers who were great thinkers, right? And they, those actors in those conditions and socially through the movement of the masses. Now, this does not mean that we think that humans are robbed. We're not determinists. We're not vulgar determinists. We don't believe humans are robbed of agency. Human history is made up of the action of individuals. As Marx said, history does nothing on its own. It is the humans that make history. Um, but the Marxist view of history and of free will, we don't give free, free will super, superhuman <laughs> capabilities that it doesn't act in a vacuum, right? Uh, and this is, I believe, what the dawn of everything does. It attributes superhuman char uh, characters, characteristics to agency, to human agency. So we put it in its real place. Human agency not in a vacuum. Human agency in certain material conditions, conditioned by the development of productive forces of that given society and reacting to real material changes that exist. So yes, human agency, but within certain limits, of course. Um, so what is... Freedom for us, then. Engels explained a wonderful quote. He said, Freedom does not consist in the dream of independence from natural laws, but in the knowledge of these laws and in the possibility this gives us of systematically making them work towards definite ends. So I believe on this page, the dawn of everything actually undermines freedom because it undermines our ability to understand the laws of how society develops and functions. So it actually limits our freedom. It doesn't increase our freedom. And that's the main problem with this book. Um, so yes, according to Graeber and Wengro, it is basically this scientific study that I have just described to you, scientific study of history and free will and determinism that has led us astray. Um, they actually paraphrase Marx. They say, we make our own history, but not under conditions of our own choosing. But then they completely, they continue to completely negate this idea. They claim that there is no way to know how much difference human agency makes. So they claim that any anthropologist trying to describe why certain changes happen is basically guessing. And so they say, precise quote, precisely where one wishes to set the dial between freedom and determinism is largely a matter of taste. Uh, this is, a, uh, I think, a complete surrender to the idea of free will as the main determinant in history. That's basically how they, how they open this argument. And they, bend, they say they're bending the stick to the left. I don't know why the left, but to the left for them means in the direction of free will. Uh, and the rest of the book, which I'll go through some of it, at least, is essentially a bunch of contrived attempts to prove this theory that they arbitrarily adopt at the beginning of the book. And then they try to fit facts into it. And you will see this is the problem with their method. Um, there's lots of problems, as you will see. So it with this method, I believe it becomes impossible to explain anything. Why do a certain people live a certain way? Because they chose to. But why did they choose to? Because they thought that it was the proper way to live. That's a quote from them. Um, as you can tell, that's quite circular, right? Uh, and I believe this is a problem with essentially what this is, is historical idealism. 
the very thing that should be explained, the ideas of the humans and why they have them, is taken as the starting point. Not <laughs> So it's taken as the starting point of investigation. And so therefore, I believe the authors find themselves stuck, actually. Uh, and in order to prove this theory, they contort facts uh, to try to fit the theory. I will cover a few of the most important ar our arguments or a few of the most important examples as I see them. But I, like I said, I can't get through everything because they use hundreds of them. So yes, uh, they claim that for the vast majority of our species' existence, if not all of it, um, we, quote, moved back, moved back and forth fluidly between different social arrangements, assembling and dismantling hierarchies on a regular basis. And we engaged in, quote, bold social experiments, and society resembled, quote, a carnival parade of political forms. This is supposed to back up the general premise that we can choose our social structure regardless of material conditions. Now, actual examples. So how did they back this up? Did we have a carnival parade? Were there bold experiments? Were we moving fluidly through hundreds of thousands of years? Um, they, I think the closest they get to prove this is they mentioned some hunter-gatherer societies that varied their social structure with the rhythm of the seasons. But as you can tell, this doesn't get much beyond the material conditions, the direct material conditions, not even the mode of production, it's the season. Um, anyway, they reference the Nambaquara in the Amazon, the Lakota in the plains of what is now the United States, and the Inuit from Northern Canada, Greenland, and Alaska. Uh, I will go through a little bit of this. The Inuit, now the Inuit's an interesting example. They actually have two separate social structures, more or less. They have one in the summer and one in the winter. In the winter, they congregate together. They have an and an egalitarian lifestyle predominates. In the summer, they spread out into small family groups and there's more of a rigid hierarchy under the male head of the family. So Graeber and Wengro used this to say, ha ha, no more stages of history, All right? Um, more or less. Uh, so they yeah, use this to support their theory that humans are consciously choosing their social structure. And they claim that the Inuit are doing this alternation, quote, on the understanding that no particular social order was ever fixed or immutable. They quote a French, French anthropologist, Marcel Mauss, and they say that he said, or they say this, quote, to a large extent, he concluded the Inuit lived that way because they felt that's how humans ought to live. What groundbreaking insight. <laughs> However, the problem is, I read Mouse's book, actually. The problem is that's not what he said. <laughs> I'll quote Mouse. Now, he's not a Marxist, but at least he's trying to be somewhat of a materialist. He says, quote, this is what Mouse says, quote, summer opens up an almost unlimited area for hunting and fishing while winter narrowly restricts this area. This alternation provides the rhythm of concentration and dispersion for the morphological organization of Eskimo society. The population congregates or scatters like the game. The movement that animates Eskimo society is synchronized with that of the surrounding life. I mean, that kind of tells us a lot, does it not? It's a fairly materialist argument that Mouse is making. Uh, so yeah, basically we have the Inuit adapted their social organization to their natural environment and the resources available to them at different points of the year. 
And even Inuit spirituality is actually structured around these different conditions which in which they procure food uh, and specifically whether or not there is an abundance, which the authors leave out a fact that is quite important to understand that in the air, air, most of the areas where the Inuit live, winter is at least nine months of the year. So they, they, they alternate, but it's more or less, I would say it's kind of like an extended hunting trip for a couple of months. Um, anyway, in the winter, like I said, last nine months of the year, the spiritual traditions are based around not offending animal spirits in order to gain, to maintain or guarantee a good hunt. During this time, there are all sorts of taboos about what you're what you should do and you should not. Summer food is not supposed to touch winter food. Tools used to hunt uh, caribou, for example, aren't supposed to touch the tools that are used to hunt seal. Um, uh, and But this is based around not offending the animal spirits to guarantee a good hunt. Why would you do that? Obviously, that's not very materialist. It is kind of a primitive spiritual tradition. Um, but basically what they're doing is they're try they're, they are in extreme conditions. At the end of winter, they start running out of food and uh, their society could almost perish. So they're, they're trying everything in their power. It's in, a way, in a way, they're experimenting to try to find a way to survive. Um, so yes, so then there's all sorts of taboos. You have to share all your food. You can't, in the, in the summer, you don't necessarily have to share your food because there, there's more abundance. In the winter, strict sharing. If you did not share, society would probably perish. And I, I think that all societies that live in these extreme northern conditions that did not develop strict sharing of food in those conditions probably would perish. Um, so, uh, yes, moving on. So yeah, that's that's the Inuit. But as you can tell, I don't think that really proves that stages, historical stages don't exist or the mode of production doesn't have anything to do with the social structure. Um, I think there's very materialist... Uh, reasons why the Inuit structured their society in such a way, which was uh, in extreme conditions. It is an outlier, actually, the Inuit. But even this outlier, I think, proves the materialist argument. Um, so throughout the book, they also misre misrepresent anthropologists. As you can tell, they misrepresent mouse, um, distort the facts. Um, so, uh, you know, on the Nambacuara, for example, this is a good example. Nambacuara is indigenous. Uh, people in the Amazon, uh, they quote Claude Levi-Strauss, uh, an anthropologist who lived with them for a couple of months, who, this is like 80 years ago, they must know that this was overturned. He thought that they alternated between hunting, gathering, and farming. This was later proven to be totally incorrect. He was just with them on an extending hunting trip. But they use this as one of their main examples to prove that people alternate and use bold experiments. But, I mean, if that's if that's one of their main examples, they're in trouble. Um, so they, they use these groups who adapt their social organization with the seasons to argue that there are no stages and that political forms have nothing to do with the mode of production. Connected to this, they try to deny that our ancient ancestors were primitive communists. Uh, their first chapter is actually titled Farewell to Humanity's Childhood. Uh, they claim that the idea that early hunter-gatherers were egalitarian with little to no inequality in wealth or power infantilizes them and deprives them of agency. Um, so unless you have class exploitation and private property and slaves, you're a child. Um, now, 
Everyone knows in the origins of the family private property in the state, Engels demonstrated that private property in the state and the patriarchal family have not always existed. Uh, and he demonstrated, I think, quite decisively, basing himself on Morgan, that our ancestors lived in what he called primitive communism. Concepts here, concepts of private property were unknown, and all things beyond personal possessions generally have been held in common. Uh, and actually, since this time, anthropologists and archaeologists have studied thousands, hundreds if not thousands of prehistoric sites and modern hunter-gatherer societies, and the overwhelming majority have concluded that early human society must have been communist or egalitarian, or egalitarian, echoing Engels' findings. Even the dawn of everything, they do engage with some anthropologists, hunter-gatherer hunter anthropologists, like, for example, they, they, they reference American anthropologist Christopher Boehm and British anthropologist James Woodburn, and they say they conclude, after studying dozens of hunter-gatherer societies, that humans must have been egalitarian. So they, they state that in their book, but then they don't like it, so they kind of just dismiss it. Um, now, when did this all change? Well, at a certain point, uh, as we know, that with the development of agriculture, the domestication of anim animals, you had what is known as the Neolithic Revolution. This was coined by Gordon Child, the Marxist anthropologist. Um, and this was a huge development. This was very key because there's a massive development in the productive forces. For the first time, a stable surplus over a long period of time became, po became possible. Um, and the seeds of private property and, the and this class society, class society in the state were planted. Eventually, a ruling class rose to power, appropriating the surplus product, cementing the exploitation of the laboring masses. Now, this didn't happen overnight. I think the process actually took thousands of years from the first domestication of plants to the rise of class society in the state. Uh, we can get into that in a minute. But it did happen, nonetheless. Um, and it took place independently. It, it took place all over the world. Actually, they even provide a map in the Dawn of Everything, and they show where agriculture was domesticated independently in a number of places. You can guess where these places are. It's where all of the first major empires rose. Um, again, there's a certain uniformity, right? which does prove that there are certain objective laws beyond our control. Um, so this poses a problem for Graeber and Wengro. It suggests that peoples who adopted institutions of class society did so under the pressure of material circumstances, arising from developments in the productive forces and the mode of production of material life, as I've explained, and not simply because they chose it, although they did cho choose it in a certain way, um, they call this, they call the Neolithic Revolution, therefore, a myth. Uh, and this actually, this disproving this takes up probably the majority of the book. Um, uh, disproving primitive communism and the Neolithic Revolution and this whole thing. Uh, so to counter this, they argue that social stratification and inequality have always existed. How do they prove this? Well, the only really a real examples that they come up with are a few burial sites um, that found in Western Eurasia during the Ice Age, which they refer to as princely burials. Nice choice of words. Uh, but then later on in the book, not in the same chapter, because they have to confuse you, later in the book, a few chapters later, uh, they are forced to recognize that these are not, are most likely individuals who were revered because of physical deformities and nothing like a privileged upper class. 
they say it's highly unlikely, quote, that society was divided along lines of status, class, and inherited power thousands of years before farming. Okay, so, so good. Um, the authors, so in order to, now they, then they move on, in order to prove what they're trying to argue, they resort to word games. This is a common postmodern thing that academics like to do, change the definition of a word to try to change reality. Uh, they, they, they claim that because there's no common definition of equality or inequality, I don't think that's true, but they say that there's no egalitarian past, therefore. Um, they play the similar game with private property. Uh, in chapter four, they state, quote, if private property has an origin, it's as old as the idea of the sacred. Uh, they say that, quote, that Amazonians believed, quote, that almost everything around them had an owner or could potentially be owned from lakes and mountains to cultivars, liana groves, and animals. What they mean is hunter-gatherers believed that a great spirit owned the planet and nature, and so that's the same as private property. As you can probably tell, that's actually the exact opposite of private property, and this is why when capitalist societies have tried to enforce private property relations on primitive communist hunter-gatherers, it takes them a long time because people, it, it, it's totally competing ideas, you know? It's the opposite. In the second chapter, uh, titled Wicked Liberty, the Indigenous Critique and the Myth of Progress, uh, they attempt to disprove the existence of primitive communism using a first-hand testimony. So this is good. It should be good, right? Uh, I, I apologize. I'm going to have to quote a little bit lengthy quotes here, but I think it's very interesting and important. Uh, so this is devoted this to the indigenous critique of European capitalist society uh, by a Huron-Wendat leader in the late 17th century. Uh, they, it's not exactly clear what his name was exactly, but he's been used in European sources. They call him Tanguiron. So if you know the Huron-Wendat, they were like a com they were competing with the Iroquois. They were horticulturalists. They were primitive communists. Um, and they the French used to invite Andiron to Montreal to debate them philosophically, politically, because they found this guy very intelligent and it was quite interesting. And they were you know whatever they found it amusing. And all of these are recorded uh, by priests and other people. And then there were books that were sold in Europe. So they quote Candiron. They're trying to make, they're trying to back up their argument by quoting him. This is what Candiron says. He says, quote, I affirm that what you call money is the devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evils, the bane of souls, and the slaughter and a slaughterhouse of the living. To imagine one can live in the country of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining one can preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. Money is the father of luxury, lasciviousness, intrigues, trickery, lies, betrayal, insincerity, all of the world's worst behavior. Fathers sell their children, husbands sell their wives, wives betray their husbands, brothers kill each other, friends are false, and all because of money. He continues, Candy Aron, he says, I have set forth the qualities that we, Wendat, believe ought to define humanity, wisdom, reason, equity. 
and demonstrated that the existence of separate material interests knock all of these on the head. A man motivated by interest cannot be a man of reason. This is Handy Rock, a primitive communist indigenous person. He criticized European society further. He states, quote, all sorts of crimes are committed upon the score of mine and thine, and suggests that the French should follow the example of the Wendat. He says, he's a, now he's advising the French. He's saying, this is what you should do, because you've got a lot of problems on this. He says, if you abandon, this quote, if you abandon concepts of, concepts of mine and thine, yes, such difference, distinctions between men would dissolve. A leveling equality would then take place, take its place among you as it now does amongst the Wendat. Uh, the French governor says, yeah, but then the ruling class and the priests would die. And uh, Candy Ronk says, well, why would I care about that? Like, you're not going to convince me. Um, and that's the argument. So what is this? Well, this is, this, from a materialist, this is not surprising. Uh, Candy Ronk's argument is actually shockingly materialist. This is a communist critique of class society. And, and we should not be surprised at this. There are actually first-hand testimony of similar critiques from similar societies. Kandyrunk lived in a class of society where wealth was held in common. So he can understand how uh, uh, differences in wealth uh, translate into different social structure, right? How classes lead to a different social structure. But Graeber distort the obvious meaning of Candy Ronk. I, I don't think it's also, I also don't think it's a surprise that they start the book with this chapter. If a couple of white professors were trying to convince you to give up the fight against private property and inequality and just claim that it existed for all time and it will always exist, it might not go over so well. But if you put the words in an indigenous guy's mouth, you can get away with it in academia. That seems to be the method of choice. So they, this is what they state about, based on, I, I read you what Candy Aron said, this is what they say that he says. They say, recall that the American indigenous critique, as we described in chapter two, was initially about something very different. The perceived failure of European societies to promote mutual aid and protect personal liberties. But that's not what he said at all. Now the authors claim that Candy Aron, quote, had trouble even imagining that differences of wealth could be translated into systemic inequalities of power. I mean, this is just insulting to Candy Rock. Uh, and they're putting words in his mouth. Um, so for his part, Candy Rock seemed to have a fairly good understanding of that, actually. That was his central argument, that the separate material interests and the mine and thine and money are at root of all of the problems you have. Again, this highlights the problem with the idealist method, where they develop an idea, a priori, and then try to make the facts justify it. So as I said, the authors attack the idea of the nihilistic revolution. They say, quote, it is also assumed that without the productive assets, land and livestock, and stockpiled surpluses, grain, wool, dairy products, etc., made possible by farming, there was no real material basis for anyone to lord it over anyone else. They point to actually a Canadian example, uh, or example in what is now Canada, the Kwakwetl, who are a West Coast people who practice, who had a form of slavery or something. We've talked about this before. It's an indigenous document. We talk about it. Um, 
So they, but I think this is an example about how the exception, which isn't, it is an exception, actually proves the rule. I'll explain why. The main productive activity of people on the Northwest coast was not based on agriculture. That is true. It's based on sam primarily on salmon fishing. Now, this appears, appears being the operative word, to contradict the notion that class society arose along with the rise of agriculture. This is one of the main examples. They use examples like this, outliers, right? Um, and so they draw the conclusion that, therefore, quote, the ultimate causes of slavery are not in the Quaquahuitl's mode of production, but rather in Northwest Coast concepts of the proper ordering of society. But why did the Quaquahuitl come to consider this the proper ordering of society? So early European explorers observed that they, there were Quote, this is a quote from the Dawn of Everything. Salmon runs so massive, one could not see the water for the fish. So if you've ever been to the West Coast, uh, I'm from the West, you know that salmon runs, even today, are quite huge. And at the time, must have been absolutely massive. Millions of salmon passing through a salmon run. So what does this mean? Let's be good materialists here. So what it means is that with the development of the productive forces, i.e. the ability to harvest and, harvest and store large quantities of fish, control over these salmon runs became an immense source of power and wealth, not unlike controlling a highly fertile farming area that people rely on to survive, boiling it down. The presence of a significant surplus in production allowed for part of society to raise itself above the rest and maintained itself through a certain form of exploitation of labor, which took the form of a form of slavery. So this is actually much more similar to an agricultural society than you would think. And I don't think it demolishes the Neolithic revolution at all. It actually deepens our understanding how the developments of production required to give the rise to slave. Sorry, it actually deepens our understanding of the developments of production required to give a rise to slavery. Uh, moving on, the state. They don't like talking about the origins of the state. They actually have chapter 10 is titled, Why the State Has No Origin. Uh, and they, they, say, they say, much like the search for the origins of inequality, seeking the origins of the state is little more than chasing a phantasm. The authors state, quote, it is often assumed that states begin when certain key functions of government, military, administrative, and judicial pass into the hands of full-time specialists. This makes sense. <clears throat> if you accept the narrative that an agricultural surplus freed up a significant portion of the population from the onerous responsibility of securing adequate amounts of food, implying that this is just a matter of accepting a narrative. But how is the state supposed to arise without this condition? So again, they're struggling. They don't have much of an argument. They resort to word games because they like word games. There's a very, very inc fantastically incredible example that they use. It's a story they tell. I will get into in a minute. But yeah, they claim that there's no consensus as to what the state actually is. They actually try, they sort of paraphrase a little bit the Marxist definition. They say, quote, um, that the states make their first appearance in history to protect the power of an emerging ruling class. I mean, like, more or less, right? But then they say, quote, this introduced new conceptual problems, such as how to define exploitation. I don't 
think that's a problem, but they don't even, they find this problem so, it's such a hard problem, they don't even try to tackle it. And then they add that this was also, this definition of the state was also a problem because, quote, it was unpalatable to liberals, unquote. Um, they, they say, uh, they, they're, they're building off an idea from a previous book called On Kings that he wrote with Marshall Salins, and they say, quote, the first kings may well have been play kings, then they became real kings. And he says, play kings cease to be play kings precisely when they start killing people. <laughs> but this does not advance our understanding of how real kings came to be. You can play play king all you want, but how that actually leads to real kings is they don't actually explain that. Um, and so I, you know, not pleased with what they call quote, drab ab abstractions of evolutionary theory, like stages or modes of production, they move on to a thought experiment. So here we go. Imagine Kim Kardashian <laughs> had, quote, a diamond necklace worth millions of dollars and wanted to prevent others from taking it. How would she do this? Now they suggest, quote, Armed personal security detail trained to deal with potential thieves might do the trick. But then they ask, but what if everyone, quote, drank a potion which made it impossible for anyone to harm anyone else? This might make, a, this might make the security detail not as effective. I don't know. So she's, she, they asked, what can Kim Kardashian possibly do? They said she could hide her necklace, quote, in a safe the combination of which she alone knew and only revealed to trusted audiences at events which were not announced in advance, unquote. Problem solved, right? They said, no, problem's not solved. Problem's not solved. Because, because what if, they say, quote, everyone on earth drank another potion <laughs> which rendered them all incapable of keeping a secret but still unable to harm one physically. They explain that only, the Kim's only hope here would be to, quote, to convince absolutely everyone that, um, being Kim Kardashian, she is such a unique and extraordinary human being, that we know she is, that she actually deserves to have things that no one else can. So from this thought experiment, <laughs> They suggest that what we call the state is a combination of three principles, control of violence, control of information, and individual charisma. That's a quote from them. Um, they, then, they then argue that whatever, wherever we find these elements, we find the state. But this proof is patently ridiculous, and this is not a serious study of social, a complex social phenomena like the state. Um, and also, even if we accept the Kim Kardashian example, this presupposes private property and inequality. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Um, and, but, but this argument basically allows the authors to make the criteria for the state so abstract and so general that it pretty much can be found throughout all of history. Um, which backs up their argument that the state has always existed, more or less. So this is idealism in action. 
but it falls apart at the moment when they go back to the reality. So uh, they're forced to, later in the book, they actually acknowledge, actually I think it's in the same chapter, they say for that prior, they're forced to recognize that prior to the Neolithic Revolution, we see none of, quote, the usual trappings of centralized power, fortifications, storehouses, and palaces. Exactly. Um, and they say instead, quote, over tens of thousands of years, we see monuments and magnificent burials, but little else to indicate the growth of rank societies, let alone anything remotely resembling states. Also, the monuments are basically mammoth huts, relatively small mammoth huts. So don't get carried away here. Um, so after taking us on this thought experiment, which I apologize for, um, they come back to Earth. Uh, we return to the very theory that they're trying to prove in the first place. They're trying the state, or sorry, the very theory they're trying to prove in the first place falls apart. The state did not always exist. It, therefore, it does have an origin, and the origin can be found in the production of surplus, upon which social classes eventually arise. Um, so, but return to one of the main questions they ask: How did we get stuck? We get stuck in our conceptual shackles, unable to think up another way of doing society. I believe they, they actually don't answer this. They cannot answer. And why can't they answer it? Well, conspicuously absent from this book, a key factor in human agency and how change happens, the class struggle. It almost is completely absent from the whole book, which makes their statements about freedom, free will, and human agency completely one-sided and abstract. That's why it sounds so ridiculous, because human agency isn't a society, everyone voting together to change forms. Uh, it arises, changes in, in society arise through the class struggle. The class struggle is the motor force of history. Um, class society, therefore, class society, the state, oppression and exploitation are not something chosen. They are imposed by one section of society on the other. And this is where agency and free will come into, in the context of the class struggle. It is not free will and freedom in a vacuum. It is within the context of antagonistic classes struggling for control and for power. Um, so yeah, they use the example, I mentioned they use the example of the Quakawedel in the Northwest Coast. Uh, they claim that slavery was the proper ordering of society. This tells us absolutely nothing. Um, the reason why slavery was the productive technique of harvesting, or sorry, the reason for slavery was that the productive technique of harvesting salmon developed to such a degree, degree that at a certain point they were able to produce a significant surplus, a stable surplus. This created the possibility of increased, the possibility of increased class differentiation. Eventually, this process took hundreds of years, apparent, according to archeological studies. Um, uh, eventually, those who controlled the salmon runs had a material interest in enslaving prisoners of war. You had tribal wars for a long period of time. Largely, prisoners of war would be integrated into the tribe. But with a significant surplus based on salmon fishing, there became a material interest <coughs> to enslave. Therefore, it's not surprising that, as the authors explained, the slaves, quote, were especially involved in the mass harvesting cleaning and processing of salmon. Um, you see a similar process with the advent of intensive agriculture in Mesopotamia, 
Egypt, Mesoamerica, and other places around the world. From this point on, Marx explains, quote, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Therefore, it is not actually a coincidence that this, at this period, it co this period coincides with when we got stuck. It's the rise of class societies. Um, now, there is an interesting comment that I'd like to kind of tangent on for a minute. Uh, it's on the direction of history and the class struggle. Uh, we don't believe that it's an upward line, unending. There are step forward and step backwards. I'll use two examples that they use, actually. Uh, Teotihuacan in Mesoamerica, which was a pre-Aztec civilization, <coughs> and Uruk in Mesopotamia, which I think most of you should know well. We talk about it quite a bit. Um, I think comparing these two examples demonstrate that the outcome of the particular class struggles are not predetermined in advance. It is a struggle of living forces, and people have freedom within the struggle to impact that struggle, and freedom to prepare for such struggles as we are doing today. Um, so they describe how the city of Teotihuacan developed around 100 BC, and they say, they say it went, quote, some way down the road of authoritarian rule. It featured impressive monumental architecture. You probably know if you've been there, you see the pictures. They have massive pyramids, um, uh, pyramids of the sun and the moon. They practice human sacrifice, much like other Mesoamerican civilizations. But then, as the authors describe, around 300 AD, the city suddenly reversed course. The authors importantly add, quote, possibly there was a revolution of sorts, followed by a more equal distribution of the city's resources and the establishment of a kind of collective governance. Uruk, the ancient Sumerian city, also saw the rise of a privileged temple bureaucracy, followed by a period of instability and the collapse at the end of the fourth millennium, millennium BC. However, the temple bureaucracy reappears in the archaeological record along with full-fledged kings, palaces, and all the other trappings of society. Uh, I think most important of all, a massive army <laughs> and a state structure to protect that ruling class. So I think comparing these two cases, which are separated so widely in time and space, tells us something very important. It is quite unlikely that everywhere where classes, class, um, an emerging class of, it's, sorry, it's quite unlikely that an emerging class of exploited was greeted happily by people, uh, such as the temple bureaucracy of Teotihuacan and Uruk. Now, to consolidate their, their position, um, th this required a class struggle of sorts. Sometimes that class struggle resulted in the consolidation of states and class rule. In the case of Uruk, in other examples, like Teotihuacan, this, the archaeological record seems to back up that actually the exploited class won, right? So uh, Gregor and Rundgren talk about this as if it's society's fluidly moving and we can just freely choose, and that therefore there's no tendency towards class societies or anything like that. Um, but what we do see is that wherever, whenever Wherever class societies and states succeed in establishing themselves, such as Sumer or the Mayan city-states, a powerful ideology 
grows up and justifies the new order and creates ideas in people's heads that this is the proper ordering of society, right? Um, as Marx put it, the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch, uh, the ideas of the are sorry, the ideas, yes, the ideas of the ruling class in every epoch are the ruling ideas. Uh, the religion, for example, changes and becomes more hierarchical. But as you can see, this is not just ideas in people's minds about the proper ordering of society. It's the product of a material class struggle between the antagonistic classes. Um, so yes, Teotihuacan shows that the would-be ruling class was defeated and society returns to function among, along more egalitarian lines. But eventually, this was overthrown, followed by the disintegration of primitive communism uh, and more hierarchical structures, city-states, class society. Um, and the long, in the long run, while we do, you do see some reversals, the long run shows that the tendency is towards consolidation of class rule and class society uh, across the whole world, uh, culminating in the point that we are at today with inequality, exploitation, and oppression are universal, and we are stuck. So, um, how can we be free? Um, well, Greater and Wengra, they come up with a great idea. They say, uh, to read, how can we be free is we need to rediscover the freedoms that make us human in the first place. I guess they mean by reading their book, we can, we can be smarter and realize other possibilities. Uh, over time, they hope that academics will be convinced to abandon all their previous materialist theories about social development. Uh, they say, they, they say this, they, they quote, they, they say this quote, we are optimists. We like to think it will not take that long. Um, but as Marx and Engels explained in the German ideology, they say, forms and products of consciousness cannot be dissolved by mental criticism, by resolution into self-consciousness, into transformation into apparitions, specters, fantasies, etc., but only by the practical overthrow of actual social relations, which gave rise to this idealistic humbug, that not criticism, but revolution is the driving force of history also of religion, of philosophy, and all other types of theory. And this is where the class struggle comes into play. It is precisely this struggle against oppression and exploitation to overthrow the capitalist system that will allow us to be free and, yes, imagine other possibilities. Um, and good news, it is possible. Uh, we are currently involved in the deepest crisis of the capitalist system since the Great Depression, and there's widespread hatred of the system, uh, growing movement against inequality and austerity, and more and more young people believe we need to overthrow capitalism. We all know the polls about communism, etc. And but this in the co in this context, this is not an unimportant debate. Maybe I've made you laugh a bit here, but that's not the point. The point is to understand the theory, because I believe arguments like this are a huge problem in the movement, and they will come up, and they're actually a barrier and make us less free, as I said. Theory is a guide to action. Um, and like I said, the book makes us less free by boiling everything down to choice. Um, so it disarms people for the class battles to come. So yeah, insofar as the book proposes a solution, they say that they are in favor of communism. Um, that's cool. Uh, but don't get your hopes up here. Uh, they, as they quite often like to redefine things, they redefine communism itself. 
they say this. They say commun they redefine communism to be, quote, not as a property regime, but in the original sense of, quote, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. This is what they call baseline communism instead of epic communism or, in or insurrectionary communism. Uh, by this they mean uh, sharing. By this they mean we should share, uh, care for each other, be kind, and have mutual aid. Uh, the example they use is, uh, they say it's communist when if someone's drowning and you throw them a rope. Uh, but I believe this is also dishonest. Communism has always, they say in their original meaning, no, communism has always been associated with common ownership. But actually, even the phrase, from each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs, came from a French man, a French communist named Morley, one of the first to identify as a communist, who stated explicitly that under communism, all goods would be held in common. Never in history has communism simply meant this kind of behavior. Um, and basically what baseline communism is, I'll quote them, is a left-leaning liberalism couched in pseudo-radical sounding language. Quote, the ultimate question of his human history, as we'll see, is not equal access to material resources, <clears throat> land, calories, means of production, much though these things are obviously important, but our equal capacity to contribute to decisions about how we live together. So instead of ending inequality, we are told that we should reorder society so that people are no longer, quote, told their needs are not important and their lives have no intrinsic worth. So amidst mass, mass impoverishment, they propose to solve this with a health, healthy dose of mutual aid. Instead of fighting to do away with the state altogether, we should aim for everyone to have an equal say. Uh, I'm sorry, comrades, I think this vision of society uh, would not offend the Pope, Justin Trudeau, or any NGO. They would probably agree with this wholeheartedly. Which tells us a lot about it. So the working class cannot rely on the state. Billionaires, obviously, given recent events. Um, <laughs> or, or lucrative, or lucrative book deals, which have been promoted by mainstream media. Um, ultimately, we can rely only on our power of organization and the clearest scientific study of history and society, which this book does not offer a new science of history, as I hope you have realized. Now, some of this might, they, some of the books, some of the things they say sound radical, but I believe that the dawn of everything is a poison pill. It's fictitious freedom and hostility towards scientific inquiry. It is incoherent and fundamentally dishonest. But we, sh and we, but I agree with them, Deborah and Wendra on one thing. We should be optimists but not for the same reason that they say. Um, as I speak, millions of workers are radicalizing, are realizing that capitalism is not for them, not because they chose this, but because they are left with no other choice. They're rising up because the material conditions have forced them into action. And we are going to see, and we already have revolution after revolution after revolution as people try to choose a new society by overthrowing capitalism. Um, and the working class has the power to make this happen. So this is how we can be free. With the democratic control over the economy, humanity will collectively become conscious master 
of our social relations for the first time, and we will be unstuck. I'll end with a quote from Engels from Auntie During, which I think sums it up pretty well. Man's own social organization, hitherto confronting him as a necessity imposed by nature and history, now becomes the result of his own free action. The extraneous objective forces that have hitherto governed history pass under the control of man himself. Only from that time will man himself more and more consciously make his own history. Only from that time will the social causes set into mo in movement by him have, in the main and in a constantly growing measure, the results intended by him. It is the ascent of man from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. Leave it at that. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.